We've also talked about how that we, as God begins moving us into a new wineskin, the very first thing that he does is he upsets our current place and condition. He will cause it to be upsetting because he's wanting you to begin to shift. There's a place in the scripture I wish I had thought it up, thought, thought to um, look it up. It talks about the eagle stirring the nest of the young. And whenever it's time for the young ones to get out of the nest, the eagle will make that nest uncomfortable for the young ones because it's time for them to move out on their own. Every time the Lord gets ready to shift your wineskin, and as Pastor Kendall was saying, Jesus shifts their wineskins every day. Their wineskin was constantly being shifted. But he will, he will bring an upsetting atmosphere to you to begin to move you, to get you to be dissatisfied with where you are, to move you into a new place. Say, into a new place. Hey, I'm going to read to you again the word that Chuck prophesied in October. This is part of the word that he was speaking. He says, see, we've been in our place for seven years, talking about glory of Zion. At the end of seven years, the wineskin shifts. I love this. I know I told all our people that, and they looked at me like I was crazy. We're wild anyway, but it still shifts. Say, it still shifts. I see, whether or not you shift, the wineskin's going to shift. Years ago, I was in meetings. This was back in the early uh, 2000s as the apostolic movement was beginning to take hold. And I went to, um, I won't even call the name of it because I don't want it to get out. But I went to some meetings where leaders would gather together once a year and they would uh, exchange thoughts and those kind of things. And it was, I quit going because it got so boring. And, uh, but one of the things that was brought up in a negative way was about the new apostolic movement that had come on the scene. It was brought out in a very negative way, and everybody was wanting to correct it. And then there was, but they made a mistake of inviting one prophet. And he got up and he began telling them, he says, I don't care what you do, and you cannot like it until now, until the time that Jesus comes. But the wineskin is shifting, and the apostles are on their way, both men and women are on their way. And that's how wineskins work. Whether or not you change, the wineskin is still going to change. Everything is going to shift when God begins shifting the wineskin. You and I have to be flexible and pliable enough to be willing to shift. And here's what Chuck says about this. He says, it takes seven years to remake a wineskin. You can do it in one of two ways. You can start with something brand new, which is similar to this right here. Or you can soak it in water, talking about the old. You can oil it, talking about the old wineskin. And then after seven years, it's ready to be used. I think that's what I, what I see going on through Florida. New wineskins are now beginning to be identified. And I talked last week how the Florida is going through a new wineskin of a new governor, a new senator, a restructuring of the panhandle after Hurricane Michael, the coastal awakening that God has prophesied that's coming to both coasts of Florida will require a new mineskin or wineskin for us to move into it. The ministry also goes through new wineskin shifts. Churches and ministry goes through wineskin shifts. Some make the cut, some don't. How can I make the shift? It's just what Jane Hammond said, update or vacate, one or the other. And you'll do one of the two things. You will go through a wineskin shift. God will begin by upsetting your present in order to birth his future. Can you make the cut? We talked about 2 Kings 6. I talked about how the, the place that they were were limited, and the sons of the prophet came to the, uh, their, their father, spiritual father, Elisha, and said, the place where we are is too limited for us. I also said last week, in order to shift into a new wineskin, you have to be a forward thinker. You have to push into the unknown. You can't be someone who always is looking in the rearview mirror at where you have been. You also have to remember this, that everyone is called to serve. And just like in that chapter there, when they were cutting down the trees, every man took a tree for himself to cut down. 
You need to find your gift and you need to begin functioning and operating in it. Everyone is called to serve. You need to connect with your leader. You need to do the stuff that God calls you to do in the new place. Operate in your new wineskin. Don't go back to the old. New wine will flow into new containers. Don't let failure be your focus. See your success. Call for the man or woman of God to help you. Receive prophetic instructions and you take up this new wineskin and begin moving in it. I also mentioned how last week how new wineskins always defy the religious traditions of men. And this is important because you'll see this all through history that new wineskins will defy traditions of men. Jesus did it. Jesus confronted several different people when he was on the earth. He confronted the government, he confronted military, he confronted the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The thing about Jesus was he was always picking a fight. Let me say that again. Jesus was always picking a fight. He was looking for a place to have war. So he did not settle with it just continued to be in the way that it was. Everything had to shift. When you defy the religious traditions of men, you're you're defying their idols, which can be programs, gifts, talents, ministries, buildings, or the old way of doing it. You also have to ask for the new wineskin strategies. New wineskin implies new Holy Spirit structures. New wineskins is a means by which new wine is presented New wine implies new Holy Spirit outpouring, new revelation, new strategies, new innovations by Holy Spirit, signs, wonders, healings, deliverance, harvest, being baptized and rebaptized in the Holy Ghost. But today we're going to talk about the empowerment of the Holy Spirit through the new wineskin, and we're going to begin looking at wineskins of the past examples of them so we can see and begin to embrace how God is shifting us into the new here in Florida and at Kingdom Gate. So I, I, I quoted, I want to read this to you. Every time a new wineskin forms, there are several things that takes place. There's an empowerment and authority that is released. Whenever you embrace a new wineskin or a new mindskin, there's an authority and an empowerment that is released to you. Whenever you got saved, the Lord washed and cleansed you from all of your sins. There was an empowerment placed on the inside of you through the grace given to you for you and I not to walk in sin anymore. Amen. I should have had an amen. There's an empowerment that comes when the Holy Spirit fills you and you speak with other tongues. We'll talk about that more in a few minutes. There's an empowerment that comes that empowers you to become that witness that operates in the power of the book of Acts and in the power that Jesus operated in. Not just ordinary power, extreme power, heavenly power. Empowerment and authority is released. New wine is poured out into new wineskins. The old wineskin rejects the new. And this has always happened. The old wineskin will always reject the new wineskin. Cheryl and I were raised in the Baptist church. And uh, when we got saved in 1976, they liked us a whole lot until May of that year. We got filled with the Holy Ghost and began speaking in tongues. And then they stopped liking us. But it didn't bother us because our, our life is not based around whether or not people love you, love me. It's based around what I do for the Lord and what his identity is in me. So they decided not to like us anymore, but we just kept on with the new wineskin. That would have been easy during that time to have reverted back to the old wineskin and say, let's just be what we were because there's no contention there. But we were so filled with the Spirit of God, we could care less whether there was contention. And the neat thing about this new wineskin that was being poured out in the 70s, we'll talk about it more in a minute. You could find a Holy Ghost-filled prayer meeting every day of the week. Every day. Holy Spirit was being so poured out 
that there were more prayer meetings in homes than there were in churches. God was showing up in people's houses. And all of a sudden, people were being filled with the Holy Spirit. They were not really doing Bible studies at people's homes. They were getting before the Lord, and the Lord would fill them with the Holy Ghost, and people would walk in who've never been filled with the Holy Ghost before, never spoke in tongues before, and all of a sudden, they're speaking in tongues. It's called because a new wineskin had formed, and new wine was being released and poured out. <clears throat> the new confronts the idols, religious structures, new wineskins, receive the gifting and the authority necessary for the season you're in. This happens sometimes abruptly and sometimes slowly. But when it happens, the way of thinking begins to shift and change. When that wineskin shift takes place, thoughts begin to change to the current wineskin. For some places, it happens immediately. For some people, immediately. Some people, slowly. I mentioned this in my first message on the wineskin. Peter Wagner was a man I've always been fascinated with. He's gone to be with the Lord now, died a couple of years ago. And But what I liked about him is all the way up even to his 80s, this man was able to change wineskins as the Lord changed it within the church. He never said the old was better. He always embraced the new. As a matter of fact, you probably could call him the spiritual dad of the new apostolic movement that is in the earth today. Probably could call him that. So we're going to look at some wineskins now, some wineskins that shifted. We're going to look at Moses' Israel and Joshua's Israel. Two different groups of people. Two different wineskins that is on the scene here. One group of people are the people who came out of Egypt. They had an Egyptian way of thinking. I know none of you have that, but they were always thinking about their problems and their issues and uh, their problems and issues were magnified much greater than God was. They had very little faith. The faith that was released came through Moses and Aaron. But in Moses' Israel, there was that Egyptian thinking. I call it Egyptian sand in their head. But then you had Joshua, and Joshua was a kingdom thinker. You had one group saying, I wish we had stayed in Egypt. And another group had said, Let's possess the land. Two different groups, two different ideologies. One's an old wineskin that said, we should have stayed where we were. Another's a new wineskin that says, we don't know where we're going, but we know that we're called to possess this land, so let's go. And that's the thing about a new wineskin is you really don't ever know where you're going. Once you, think you're do once you know that you have arrived you have now officially entered into an old wineskin way of thinking. The Moses Israel, they were constantly disobedient, constantly whining and complaining. Even when they get into the wilderness and manna falls from heaven, they've never seen it before. That's why when it fell the first time, they called it manna. It means what is it? They'd never seen it before, but it started falling every day. The neat thing about that manna was the fact that you couldn't keep it over for the next day except on the Sabbath. Because if you kept it over to the next day, it would mold and you was not eatable the following day. If God was giving them a picture, I want you to trust me. I don't want you to store things up. Hey, Y2K people, remember this. I don't want you to store things up. I want you to trust me from day to day. That's what he's telling them. Manna comes down out of heaven. And then in the afternoon, quails walk into the camp. I mean, you don't even have to work to get this stuff. It's just coming because of who God is. But they were constantly disobedient, and then they begin complaining about the manna. They begin whining about the manna. When Moses goes up to the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments, because he's in the glory for so long, they start making idols. They start reverting back to their Egyptian way of thinking, and they make idols there. So when he gets back down from the mountain, he sees all this, and all of a sudden he's in an uproar and breaks the tablets. However, on the Joshua generation, a new wineskin, they're obedient. They're obedient not to the ways of the past, but they're obedient in a new way of possessing the land. You see, Joshua and Caleb were the only two original people that, that was 
older than 21, whenever they, they were sentenced to the wilderness for 40 years. Everyone else under the age of 21 passed away except for Joshua and Caleb. And when they were 80 years old, and you listen to this, because I want you and I to quit thinking about being old, and uh, you know, you can't teach an old dog new tricks, well, thank God you're not a dog. They were 80 years old when they went in to possess the land. And, jo- and Caleb said this when it came time to go and take his mountain. He said, I want my mountain that Moses promised me. He and I went in covenant for this mountain. He's given me this mountain. He says, I know there are giants on this mountain, but I am well able, at 80 years old, I am well able to take this mountain. See, that's a new wineskin way of thinking. They were obedient. Moses' generation was, their wineskin was faithless. They didn't have to exercise any faith. But Joshua's generation is filled with faith. Matter of fact, it's filled with so much faith that three days after they walk into Canaan land, the manna stops. The quails start coming in, uh, quit coming up. Because now it's time for them to possess. You see, in the, and I'll share this with you. I got this from somebody else, but I think it's good. In the wilderness, they had just enough. But in Canaan land, they had more than enough. And they didn't need that manna coming down out of heaven. They didn't need the quail coming up in the afternoon. Because God had provided them a land with more than enough. You know what? You and I will will eat this Christmas what the equivalent of some people in third world countries will eat an entire month. Maybe, Maybe two or three months. Because we lived in such, we live in such a blessed, blessed land. If you went and spent three months in one of these third world countries like Haiti and didn't have any missionary support, go spend three months over there. You'd start being thankful for this land that God has given us. They were faithless, but the Joshua generation was filled with faith. They said, let's go and do this. Let's possess this land. Moses' generation, the Moses wineskin, had a fear-based religion. They operated based on fear instead of faith. They were, as a matter of fact, when Moses came down off the mountain, they were so afraid of his countenance that they had to cover his face because his face shone of the glory of God. And they were so fearful of that. However, the Joshua wineskin was not fear-based, but they were encounter-driven. When they went and took a city, they knew they did it because the Lord was there with them, helping them fight. They were so encounter-driven with the Lord that Joshua sees uh, the captain of the Lord's host. He didn't know who he was, standing outside the wall of Jerusalem. And Joshua's out one night surveying it, and he sees this captain of the Lord's host there with sword drawn. And he says to him, are you with us or are you against us? And the captain said, neither. Meaning, you're going to have to join my team. I'm not joining your team. And the new wineskin way of thinking is that God's not joining your team. You have to join his team. He's not going to join you in your pity parties. He's not going to join you in your faithless life. He's not going to come. uh, uh, He's not going to join in your pity party with you. He wants you to arise in faith. And begin possessing the land in Jesus' name. Moses' wineskin dispossesses their inheritance. And the new wineskins become a possessor of the inheritance. All because they had a new way of thinking. Another one here, another shift in wineskin is the order of Saul and the order of David. We were talking about before the service a book that everyone needs to read, and I may take Patty up on it, read it every a chapter every time we have service in January, called The Tale of Three Kings by Gene Edwards. If you've never read this book, it's mandatory reading for you if you're going to grow in the Lord, in my opinion. Because when you start reading this, it's the life of David, the life of Absalom, and the life of Saul. And you start seeing... David's life, and you identify with it, but then you see Absalom's life 
and you identify with that. And then you see Saul's life, and all of a sudden you see some of Saul in you as well. It's a book that will literally have you in tears by the time that you finish reading it because it begins to show you who you are and who God wants you to be. But there is an order of Saul and an order of David, and I didn't bring this scripture out, but the Word of God says that up until one point, there continued to be war against the house of Saul and the house of David. Those two houses continued to war. The old continued to war against the new. As a matter of fact, Saul was a guy who was liked by men, but God, uh, David was a man who was respected by God. In Acts 13, 22, the Lord says of David, I have found a man after my own heart. I love this because it's literally saying, God is saying there that after he removed him, he raised up David to be their king concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart. That's the kind of people that God is looking for. He's not necessarily looking for people who are willing to be liked by men, but people who will be respected by God. People who will go after the Lord. And that's what he said. What I love about this is that he says, I have found David. I love this because it's as if though God is searching for someone who will be after the heart of God. He's always searching for people who will go after him. I hope you get that. He's searching for people who'll go after him. Not after things, not after being respected by men, wanting men to like you, but will go after the heart of God. He is searching for people with that kind of passion. During the wineskin of Saul, he feared the giant. Not only him, but all of Israel feared the giant. There was one fearless character, though, by the name of David, when he walked out on the field of battle to greet his brothers. He heard the giant taunting the armies of God. And it was as if though David said the audacity of this guy to come out here and taunt this army that belongs to God and has God by her side. And so he rises up and he slays the giant. One was in fear of the giant. Another one slays the giant. Listen to this. The things that you want to do in fear, somebody else will step up and do it because they don't walk in fear. You need to grab that. The things that you want to do but you don't because you're fearful, somebody else will step up and courage and do what you're called to do. That's why Chuck talked about not having postponement. That was in my message last week as well. We have to break postponement off of us because we have have an appointment here in this house, in your life, Corporately in Florida, we have an appointment with the destiny of God. And he wants us to meet that appointment. And that's why we have to arise in courage and begin possessing the land. Sometimes people aren't going to like you. There are a lot of people in Florida who don't like me and in the nation as well. And you know, it's their loss. I think I'm a pretty good guy. That's what she tells me all the time, Patty. I've got one friend. She says, I'm the only friend you've got. (laughs) But somebody has to rise up in Florida and possess this. And the opportunity that God has given to this house, to Brevard County, has never been given in this county before. The opportunity that we had, that we have, The people that God has brought here have never been brought into this region before. Not all at one time. It's important that you get this because we have to shake off of us the desire and tendency to want to go back to what we used to have and what we used to be. We have to shake that off of us. Cheryl and I rolled out of bed this morning. We both were kind of tired and sleepy. We worked all day yesterday getting ready for Tuesday. And and she said, can I play hooky this morning? I said, only if I can. (laughs) And I said, well, can I? She said, yeah, I'm giving you permission. (laughs) Somebody has to step up and say, hey, 
Listen to this. Quit saying your health is why you can't be what God wants you to be. Stop saying that. Because when you say that, you enforce the enemy's hand. You start saying, I'm going to do what God's called me to do. And if I die doing it, at least I'm going to die doing what he said to do and be. Don't give your your, your, your lack of health a place in your life. Don't embrace that. I was, when I had my heart issues back in 2011, and, and as I've shared with you before, all the doctors and nurses thought I was going to die. I thought I was going to die. The only one who didn't think I was going to die was my wife, Cheryl. And, uh, and that's because she prayed over me, and within two or three days, she never worked an iPhone before. She had 5,000 people praying for me within two days, and everything began shifting then. But my cardiologist came up to me, and, and this is a different heart issues, so you're thinking he has blockages, and I've had two catheterizations, two nuclear stress tests, and I have no blockages. So it's just a different thing that I am conquering and overcoming and being healed of. He said this to me, because they were not thinking I was going to make it. He said to me, Ken, just do what God's called you to do. That's what he said. He said, just go ahead and do what he's called you to do. Be what he's called you to be. In other words, he was saying, don't let your condition dictate to you what God has called you to be and do. It's a good word right there. Don't let it dictate to you. Don't let your finances dictate to you what God has called you to be and to do. God told me one time, he said, if finances are an issue, you'll never do what I've called you to do. From that point on, I quit making them an issue. I quit saying, I I can't afford this. I quit saying it costs too much. If it costs too much, I just don't get it. But I'm not going to say it. Because at some point, I'm going to step into a realm of glory where everything's going to be provided. Order of Saul served the will of man. The order of David served the will of God. Acts 13, 36, and I've given orders to my wife to put part of this scripture on my tombstone when I do go to be with Jesus. Somebody asked me yesterday, how much long do you think you have on the earth? I said, a good 40 years. Who was that, Cheryl? I don't remember who it was. I said, a good 40 years. That'd make me 103 years old. People are doing it all the time today. As a matter of fact, the Bible promises man 120 years years not 70 70 was just for the people in the wilderness not you and I he's promised us 120 years we got to think differently yeah Saul served the will of man David served the will of God Acts 13 36 he says there that after he had served the purpose of God in his generation I love this he served the purpose of God. In what an epitaph to have written about you that you served the purpose of God in your generation. What did you do when you were alive? What, did you, what kind of legacy? This is a legacy David left. You can go and you start looking at people, and we'll talk about some here in a moment. You can start looking at people who have, who have left legacies. Catherine Kuhlman. Watchman Nee, we were talking about him this morning. Gene Edwards and C.S. Lewis, all these people left legacies for us to continue to live by. We're still living by those, by those legacies that they left. I had, we had one lady, she's gone to be with the Lord years ago. She was, back when I was her pastor, um, she was old then. But every week, Pearl Clark would call me on the phone and prophesy over me in tears and praying for me. She prayed for me every day. So much so that it left a mark in my life of how this lady operated. Every week she called me and prophesied to me. Saul was a spear thrower. David was a unity seeker. Even when his own son, you can read about this in the tale of three kings. Even when his own son... Took, tried to take him down from the throne, 
David walked away from the throne and gave it to his son. Let God deal with that. That's a good word there. There's also the new wineskin of the old covenant and the new covenant. A totally different picture of one that you live by the law, you live by commandments. Here's another covenant that you're empowered by grace so that you can live a holy life. They were never never able to do it before under the old covenant. But now the new covenant comes along and Jesus died for our sins. We embrace the new covenant through Christ. And now we have the authority and the power to overcome sin. Not to be overcome by sin, but to overcome sin. There's also the two different covenants of uh, wineskins of John the Baptist and Jesus. You may not think about this, but John the Baptist and Jesus were totally two different Groups of wineskin. John the Baptist comes along first, and he's saying, prepare the way of the Lord. He says, repent, think differently. Make way for the Lord. A totally different wineskin. Jesus comes along and says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. One is preparing the way. Another one's saying, the kingdom is here. And I feel like that we're, we're, at a, we're almost at a place. And even Dutch prophesied this last February here. He especially prophesied it to me that we have to learn how to begin moving out of the forerunner and into the awakening, into the kingdom. And I feel like that the body of Christ is almost at a place where we're stepping out of the forerunner wineskin and moving into the kingdom wineskin of revival. We'll take a look at modern day wineskins and how they shifted over the years. Outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Topeka, Kansas. Some of you may have thought the first outpouring was in, at Azusa, but it wasn't. It was at a school in Topeka, Kansas, and a young lady was the first one to receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost and speak in tongues. And all of a sudden, the outpouring begins in 1901 in Topeka, Kansas. A little unknown place, unknown person, unknown school. But these people were going after God. When you study their history in Topeka, this school, and I love when schools do this. You don't have many that do it anymore. But this school was going after the Lord. The students were going after God. And this lady was a student. And she gets filled with the Holy Ghost. They don't even, they're kind of like uh, John the Baptist's disciples been baptized in the baptism of John. But what is the baptism of the Holy Ghost? And all of a sudden, the Holy Ghost fills the place. Nobody's ever preached to them speaking in tongues. The Holy Ghost fills the place, and this lady begins speaking in tongues. And all of a sudden, it begins snowballing. In 1906, at Azusa Street, A black man by the name of William Seymour begins to lead an outpouring of the Spirit of God. The neat thing about William Seymour, and I've heard this said and I've read about it from historians of that time, is that William Seymour, as long as he kept his head in the orange crate and praying, the glory was filling the place. I have read articles by children of parents that were there and how that they would say that the Shekinah glory of God filled the place like like dry eye smoke. And that the kids would play hide and seek inside this glory. And a religious mindset says you shouldn't do that when the glory is present. Jesus loved them playing hide and seek in that glory cloud. William Seymour, a black man, gave birth to many Pentecostal movements, assemblies of God, church of God, Pentecostal holiness. All of these were part of the different outpourings that took place. In 1938, Billy Graham was called into ministry right over here on a golf course in Temple Terrace, Florida. The same year that Roosevelt was president, and I've got a whole dream about that. I will tell later if you're you're interested, and I think it's on my website. He began the evangelical movement. And by 10 years later, he had one of the biggest crusades that America had ever seen with 100,000 people in attendance. 
He had another crusade later on in Madison Square Garden, and nobody had ever heard of preachers being in Madison Square Garden, but they had 100,000 people receive Christ as Savior for first time in Madison Square Garden. He, was birthed, he birthed the evangelistic movement in America. If you ever were in a Baptist church, you will remember that they would have meetings that went on for days, and there was one message that was preached, and it was a message of salvation. And every night they gave an altar call, and every night people came down. Uh, I, I didn't know it until they had a crusade there in our hometown, and the Baptists did, and they had a tent. I think it was at Vanity Fair parking lot, I believe. And uh, I learned then that some of the people who were already saved would walk down to make decisions so they could get everybody else to walk down. It's okay if it gets them down there. Flip your page. We're going to look. In 1947, the Voice of Healing Movement came along on the scene. Voice of Healing Movement was birthed by people like William Branham and Oral Roberts. And across the world, people were being healed. Gordon Lindsay was a part of that. People were being healed miraculously. It was during that time in the 50s that... Uh, Oral Roberts began to have television shows and he began to be the first one when it was still black and white. He said, put your hand on the screen as a point of contact to believe God to be healed. And many people were healed. William Branham, if you ever read anything about him, this man was a powerful man of the Lord. He had a dream one night about a young boy being run over by a car and flattened his head. And it wasn't maybe a year or two after that, that he and Gordon Lindsay was in a country in Europe. And they were driving along, and they came on a car accident, and a young boy was there dead, and his head had been flattened by the car accident. And William Branham says to Gordon, he says, this is the dream, this is the dream, this is the dream. And they go over there and pray for him. This is written in testimonies. They go over and pray for him, and this boy's head expands, and he comes back to life. See, that's a new wineskin. If you're thinking that couldn't happen, that's an old wineskin. Shift into the new. You have the Jesus movement of the 1960s and the 1970s. This was a powerful, powerful movement. If you were ever part of the Jesus movement, traditional institutional church was not what you liked. You liked being out on a beach with a guitar. And five or six, 10, 15, 20 people all in a circle, and you're just loving the Lord and playing that guitar. That's how the Jesus movement got started. One of the guys who helped start the Jesus movement was a man by the name of Hubert Lindsay. They called him Holy Hubert, and he was on the campus of uh, Berkeley in California, in Berkeley, California. He was on that campus in the 60s and part of the 70s. This man would get out there and preach on the campus. He would kneel down and pray on the campus. He led thousands of people to the Lord there at Berkeley in the California region there. But he also paid a high, heavy price. He had been beaten so many times that he went blind at an early age. His wife died an early death because of the number of times that he'd been beaten. He was beaten one time by a black man who was part of the Black Panthers. He tells this testimony, and he was beaten so severely that he went unconscious, but before he went unconscious, he told the Black Panther man, he said, I want you to know that I love you with all of my heart. Within one week, this Black Panther was saved and came to Jesus Christ because a new wineskin was on the campus and willing to die for the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There was a charismatic movement from 1967 to 1980s. A lot of this happened in the, uh, in the homes like I was telling you about. People were getting together, being baptized in the Holy Ghost. Gifts were beginning to function and take, and take place. This was a whole new wineskin. Let me share this with you. You remember me saying that the old wineskin persecutes the new? The Assemblies of God, the Church of God, Pentecostal Holiness, all persecuted the Jesus movement and the charismatic movement and the intercessory prayer movement and the harp and bowl movement and the ecclesia movement and the apostle and prophet movement. As a matter of fact, Assemblies of God has position statements on their website opposing the apostolic and the prophetic. These are Pentecostal people. 
but they're in an old wineskin. Charismatic movement, which Cheryl and I came out of, filled with gifts, glossalea, tongues, Greek word for tongues, was going everywhere. People were being filled with the Holy Ghost. Same time, we were being persecuted, but we counted it joy. My family, I shouldn't have said that, some of my family wanted to have me see a psychiatrist because I was so filled with Jesus and so filled with praying in tongues. I didn't do anything out of the way in front of them. We got kicked out of our Baptist church because we were praying in tongues, but we didn't do it in the church. Our daughter, she gave it away because she was three years old at the time, and she would stand on the second pew there and hold her hands up while they were saying, I fly away, and uh, she would start saying, glory to God, hallelujah, and uh, <laughs> they knew where we had been. You had the chorus movement of the 70s. If you're a product of the 70s, you'll know that almost every song that we sung was a scripture song. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, in the mountain of his holiness, beautiful for situation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king, Psalm 29. Psalms 37, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his way. And those were the courses, that's what we sing. But those were persecuted by the old wineskin. Mylon Lefebvre comes along. I should have thrown this in here. Mylon Lefebvre took a lot of beatings from the traditional Pentecostal. When I say Mylon Lefebvre, how many know what I, who I'm talking about? Just a few of you. Go get on YouTube and watch this guy. He come up through the 70s and the 80s, and he kind of created a rock atmosphere to, the, to gospel music. And I remember <clears throat> taking our youth at our church in Montgomery to one of his concerts there in Montgomery, and I purposely wore earplugs because I knew it to be loud. See, in order, sometimes in order for you not to be offended by loud music, you need to put your earplugs in. Because we're trying to reach, although we don't, haven't reached them yet, we're trying to reach another generation of people. So throw those earplugs in so you're not offended. I put those earplugs in because I have been hearing stories and reading stories that Mylon Lefevre and his group were offering strange fire off the altar and all kind of stuff like this, that they were saying words, you know, that should not be said in Christian music. And so when I, but when I put the earplugs in, I could hear every word he was saying. It's like it quietened the music to where I could hear every word he was saying. And every word that he said constantly was lifting Jesus. Totally, totally lifting Jesus up. But he was, again, was persecuted by, he's, he was in the church of God. He was persecuted by them. He was persecuted by the assemblies of God and some well-known people. <clears throat> Go back to the page before again. There was a faith movement of the 70s and, I, uh, and the 80s. It began in the 70s and went in through the 80s. I love the faith movement because the faith movement taught people how to live by the Word of God, not by their emotions. I came up through the faith. I came up through all of these movements and just decided to embrace all of them, it, except for those in Topeka, Kansas, and Azusa Street, and, and uh, Billy Graham. I didn't come up in that. By the time you hit the 60s and 70s, I'm starting to become a product of that. And so I was in the faith movement, and the faith movement taught you to quote the scriptures, to decree those out loud. If you're having a problem, you start quoting the scriptures one right after another. And you quote that out, because see, the Word of God, this is what they would say, and it's true. The Word of God has inherent power to change everything in you. And if you start, it will not come back void. If you start decreeing that Word, it won't come back void. It'll start changing you. Also, the prophetic movement of the 1980s, prophetic movement came on the scene. Bill Hammond is probably the granddaddy of the prophetic movement in America and around the world. He's still living, by the way, and um, maybe we should have him come. I'm getting some of the older, older generations to come in here real soon. I'm going to have uh, 
Pamela Durstein's uncle. Uh, we're working on dates right now, Gerald Durstein, to get him in here. He's 90 years old. I want to get him here to release an impartation. And if you've never read anything about him or heard anything, go to YouTube or buy, purchase some of his books. This man was a guy bef way before his time. Saw signs and wonders and miracles in the east bank of Israel there like you've never seen before. Powerful man of God. Faith movement. Then the prophetic movement of the 80s. And then you have the apostolic movement of the 90s and the 2000s. Every time, it, every time this came on the scene, everything shifted. The thing about a wineskin, and why some people are turned off about it, is a wineskin, when it, it is presented, always goes to the extreme. That pendulum always swings to the extreme. But hold on. Do not get discouraged by that because it will eventually come back to the middle. And so you have to have understanding of that when the prophetic movement came around this same meeting I told you that I quit attending a few years ago. I was in one of those, and they were bombarding the prophetic movement. That was leading people astray. And, and uh, I had one pastor that said to me, he said, Brother Ken, you need to stay away from that prophetic movement. It's hurting a lot of people. And I said to him, I said, there's nobody that's hurt people more than the pastoral movement has. Of course, he didn't like saying that, hearing that. You do have your extremes, and you do, but you have to understand that. It goes to, every, time it comes, every time the wineskin shifts, it goes to an extreme, but eventually it comes back to the middle. The apostolic movement, the, North, um, the uh, new apostolic reformation is what Peter Wagner identified it as. I got accused here a few months ago of being part of that new apostolic reformation movement, and I am. But they were saying in a negative way. I've got whole websites about me. I, I know some of you have never seen them before. And people who have written things about me. And, uh, but that's okay. Uh, Dutch is on the Southern Poverty Law Center's watch list. Dutch Sheets is. If you know anything about the Southern Poverty Law Center. It's all because he believes in the Bible the way the Lord wrote it. And not the way the world wants us to see it. Then there was the intercessory prayer movement of the 1990s. And the 2000s, a new wineskin came in place, and all of a sudden, people who were not used to praying began praying a long time. They began praying. People everywhere started praying. But they were not praying for Sister Susie and Uncle Bill. They were praying for God to do something in the earth. The whole movement of prayer began to shift. Many couldn't shift with it because... They had not seen prayer on that kind of a level where people were getting intense, having intensity in prayer and the prayer was ramping up and that all of a sudden, I, I tell you, back in the uh, early 90s, I did nine messages in a row on prayer at our church back over in Davenport and I found out about half the church was demon possessed. I'm just, that's just, I'm just kidding about that. But people began complaining. Because I was talking about prayer so much. See, the wineskin had shifted. Then in the 2000s, the harp and bowl, which these guys are part of. Harp and bowl came along the scene. Harp and bowl became a new wineskin. And people like Mike Bickle and, and others, they began to change the language. And they come up with the language of harp and bowl. Instead of prayer and worship, it became harp and bow, and they took that out of Revelation 5. Uh, me and some other people came up with another thing called harp, bowl, and crown in the same 2000s, but it didn't take off because we weren't anybody to make it take off. But there is a crown aspect to Revelation 5. There's not just a soaking aspect to Revelation 5. Because in the Revelation 5, you do see a harp and you do see a bowl, which is the harp represents worship, the bowl represents the prayers of the saints. But you see a throne there also. And from that throne, decrees are issued. And so we called it harp, bowl, and crown to say, hey, now we've got to include not just the soaking, but now we've got to include the decrees of the Lord that he wants to decree in the earth. 
That's a good word there. And then in the 2000s, you have the ecclesia movement that I believe is still not understood yet, but will be understood. We're starting to see more and more people understand what it means to be an ecclesia. Now, anybody can tell me real quickly, say it out loud, what it means to be an ecclesia. They just laid it, all those are right. And see, if you go and look that word ecclesia up in the Strongs, which is the Greek word for church, you're just going to find called out ones. That's all you're going to find, which is a very poor definition. In order to understand what ecclesia actually is, you have to go and search the history of what an ecclesia actually was. And when Jesus said, upon this rock, I will build my ecclesia, that actually that word there that, sh- that, that should be there for the word church is kuriakon. Because that word church there actually means the word kuriakon. But they, the actual wording is ecclesia. But King James would not put that wording in as being a legislative assembly because he wanted no government in the earth but his. And so they, he would not allow them to put, as a matter of fact, William Tyndall. One of the reasons he was martyred is because he refused to put the word church into his Bible. He was martyred because of that. An ecclesia is a governing body. It was a group of citizens that were called to govern a region, called to govern a a city, or govern a, a state or a territory. And when Jesus said, upon this rock I will build my ecclesia, he knew what he was talking about. He wasn't talking about this building. But he was talking about a governing group of people who will govern in the earth. Not so much from a civil government standpoint, although that could be. But he was saying that they're going to legislate and govern in their cities. Listen to this. There is no doubt in my mind, Hal, that had the church not prayed for Ron DeSantis, we would be seeing another governor going in in January. There's no doubt in my mind. The ecclesia rose up and began to govern and make decrees in the earth that caused a shift in the atmosphere. Gillum had him beat hands down. Had him beat in every way, shape, form, or fashion. Except the ecclesia decided that they would say, who's going to be governor? And that's what it means to legislate. And as Cheryl said, Rick Scott as well. And they tried to take it away from us. We prayed again. Listen to this. When the wineskin changes, God will raise up someone to spearhead the new wineskin and the new wine. Examples are John the Baptist, Jesus, Peter, Paul. And even though they're in the same time frame, when Paul came along, the whole wineskin shifts. Paul brings a radicalization to the disciples that they didn't have before. I mean, this guy was totally radical. And he actually rebuked Peter for agreeing with the circumcision that the the Greeks must be circumcised. And Paul rebuked him for that. Paul was one, Peter and Paul both were people who brought the message of the gospel to the Gentiles. But listen to this. Martin Luther who wrote the 99 Thesis, stuck it on the door of the church there in Wittenberg, Germany, and stating that man would live by faith and not by works. He, and that was the Catholic church that he went up against. And you go and read some of their stuff today. To this day, they're still writing about how terrible this guy was. But this guy broke open the heavens For you and I to be able to read the Bible when up to that point only the priest could read and interpret the Bible. You have people like John and Charles Wesley who are the founders of the Methodist church. And they came up, the reason it's called Methodist is they came up with methods into moving into the holiness of the Lord. They were a sanctification people. You had William Seymour who I mentioned earlier. A black man, who ever heard of a black man leading a revival in Los Angeles in 1906? You wouldn't have heard of that. Only God can do something like that. Oral Roberts, 
brought the healing. And William Branham brought the healing message. Then you have Kenneth Hagin comes on the scene with the faith message. I love Kenneth Hagin. I cut my teeth on Kenneth Hagin. I actually have drank from all streams, y'all. I cut my teeth on this guy because he was kind of the daddy in the faith movement. But all of his teaching came, and if you ever get a chance to read any of this, came from E.W. Kenyon. I have some original E.W. Kenyon books. Came from E.W. Kenyon out of the 1800s. A powerful man of God. You had John Wimber, who was the daddy of power evangelism, who brought a new wineskin into evangelism. Rather than trying to contend with the mind of man, God used John Wimber to, with signs and wonders to cause people to turn and come to the Lord. He would go and he would pray for people and they would be healed and give their heart and life to Jesus. He was on an airplane. He has this in his book, Power Evangelism. He was on an airplane flying somewhere, and he was one of these big airplanes that has a lounge and a part, portion of it. And he, he, he turns around in his seat, and when he turns around, he sees written across a man's forehead the words adultery. So this guy that he sees this goes to the lounge, and John Wimber follows him up there. And when he gets to the lounge, John, God gives John Wimber the name of the woman. And he says to the man, he says, does this name mean anything to you? And he calls her name. He goes, shh. How did you know? He starts telling him, God showed me that you're an adulterer. John Wimber leads this guy to the Lord. And see, that's why God would show you stuff like that. He wouldn't show you stuff like that just to expose somebody. He would show you stuff like that so that you could lead that person to Christ or you could pray for him. So he leads this man to the Lord, and this man says, you know what I've got to do now? He said, what are you going to do? He said, I've got to go down to this airplane and tell my wife. John Wimber said, I'm not going to tell you to do that. But he does. He goes down, and he sits beside his wife, and he starts opening up and confessing to her, and she starts crying because he then finds out that she also is in an affair, and both of them get saved right there on the airplane. Praise God. You have uh, Peter Wagner, which I've talked about before, Bill Hammond also. You have Chuck Pierce, who to me is one of the most correct prophets that I've run across. You have Dutch Sheets, who's become apostolic. These people like this will spearhead a new wineskin on an international, national, state, and local level. As I was putting this together, I was remembered of the words that Tim Sheets spoke here about the standing king. The culmination of all of these moves of God have been poured out upon the head of Jesus. All the oil of all these moves of God have poured out on the heads of Jesus and has collected in his lap. And now he's beginning to stand. And all of these different moves of God are beginning to come together and beginning to be poured out in the earth. And I really believe this, that it is. The Lord spoke to me last week of December 2011, told me several things, but two of them I remember well. One was that my dad was going to pass away in the month of January of 2012, but he also told me that he was marrying the voice of healing movement to the modern-day apostolic movement, and it will look like the voice of healing on steroids. There's a culmination of all these moves of God that is getting ready to pour out in the earth. Will you make the cut? We talked about that last Sunday. Will you make the cut to get into these new moves of God? Or will you constantly try to sabotage the moves of God because you're in an old wineskin? You need to think about this because if I do this message one more time, it's going to be on left behind. And I'm not talking about the rapture either. Because God is going to do this, whether you want him to or not. Because he'll do it with you, or he'll do it without you. The choice is yours. Wine skin shifts, you have to think differently. John the Baptist comes along preaching in Matthew 3, and he says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John the Baptist is a forerunner. He says, here in John 1.29, he saw Jesus coming and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He pointed to Jesus. 
And he said, you have to think differently now. You're in a new wineskin. But then Jesus comes along the scene. And he says, repent. You have to think differently now because you're in a new wineskin, which means the season has shifted. It has shifted from preparing the way and being a forerunner to the place where now the kingdom is here. That's what Jesus said. Think differently. Don't think like John the Baptist thought. you got to begin thinking like I want you to think now. And so what we have to begin doing is not thinking in ways that we used to think, in moves that we used to think of. I hear people all the time that they tell me, I sure do miss the charismatic movement. There's been nothing like it since then. I totally agree with you. But I know what's coming. I know what's coming. It's going to be much greater than the charismatic movement ever thought about being. And all of it will be on steroids. Stand to your feet.